a wealthy businessman passed away and his attorney was gathered with his wife and daughter and some family members in one of the rooms of their estate going over the will. And the attorney read the words of the man who had passed away and said to my darling wife, Betsy, you've loved me through good times and bad. You've always been there for me. I leave to you the business, $5 million, and the estate. And to my darling daughter, Marcy, you cared for me during the months of my illness. You've always been a faithful daughter. To you, I leave the yacht and $1 million. And to my cousin, Dan, who always hated me, who never said anything good about me, and who never thought I would mention him in his will, in my will. (coughs) Hi, Dan. (laughs) It is amazing to see and to hear stories of how long people carry grudges. I've heard some stories that have left me dumbfounded. A woman who uh, passed away in her belongings was found uh, a notebook filled with all of the offenses that her brother had committed against her. She wrote them all down. She kept a record of every one. There are stories of families who have split who haven't talked to each other in 40 years because Aunt Mabel said to Aunt Gertrude one Thanksgiving that her macaroni and cheese had a little too much salt in it. And a grudge was put into a heart and it hardened and it grew and it stayed there with the person until they died. There's a danger, a grave danger in keeping grudges. Grudges are um, a, a, a hidden sign of pride. What we're actually saying when we hold a grudge against someone is, uh, I live better than you do. I'm a better person than you are. I have fewer faults than you do, and so I'm keeping a record of your faults. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, he reserved his harshest words, not for the broken, down-and-out, repentant sinners, but he reserved his harshest words for the proud, high and mighty Pharisees who thought that they had it all together, that they were better than everyone else. And Jesus addressed this issue of pride and of keeping things in our heart that shouldn't be there. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but in Proverbs 6, verse 16, now this is an old-fashioned way of of saying this. The Bible often will say something like this. There are are six things the Lord hates, even seven things. It's, It's an old way of saying, oh man, that's not even all. There's more. And in Proverbs 6, 16, it says, these six things the Lord hates, 
Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. I don't know if you find that a little uh, surprising to see that pride is the first thing on his list, assuming he mentioned them in some kind of order. Pride. And not even just pride, but just a proud look. God hates that. And trying to get this point across to his disciples, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. This is not where we're going to be today, but I wanted to share this with you. In Luke 18, it says also he spoke this parable to, now look at the people he's speaking this to, three things, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, okay, They trusted in their self-righteousness, and they despised others. He said to them, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Wow. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Verse 13, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus adds this important footnote. I tell you, this man, pointing to the tax collector who was despised in that day. This man went down to his house or went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice there are no exceptions to this. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And that humbling process can take a lot of different forms. I experienced that to a large degree over the last few months of this year. Uh, I had plans reaching out for weeks and months ahead. And in a moment, I was in the back of an ambulance being raced to the hospital, and my life changed. And what I went through after that was humbling and humiliating in many ways. And so I know that it can happen in the blink of an eye. God can humble us. He can knock our legs out from under us. He can, as Charles Spurgeon once said, cut us down to size. I want you to turn this morning to the book of Obadiah. We're continuing our study through the Bible, and we come this morning to the prophecy of Obadiah. And this is an often overlooked book. You rarely hear sermons from Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses. In fact, if you're not careful when you're flipping through the pages trying to find it, if you blink at just the wrong time, you'll actually miss the whole book. It's sort of sandwiched in between all the other books. It's overlooked and forgotten for the most part, but I believe you'll agree when we're finished that there are some extraordinary truths and principles 
to be taken from these short 21 verses. The theme that pulses through the book of Obadiah, two things actually. Number one is the proud and the boastful will be humbled by God. And secondly, it shares with us the dangers, the hidden dangers of holding grudges. Now, there are some books in the Bible you can just jump in and begin reading, and it makes sense. Obadiah is not one of those books. It's impossible to understand the book of Obadiah without first understanding a little bit, at least, of its history and what God is speaking about as he makes this prophecy through Obadiah. The background of these events that we're about to read can be traced all the way back to a family feud. Not the game show, not the Hatfields and McCoys. This feud goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, to a set of twins named Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob, uh, if you'll remember, just to help give you a picture of how this maps out, Esau and Jacob were the twin boys of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was the son of Abraham. So Esau and Jacob were Abraham's grandsons. And we know the story. I'm not going to go through all of it, but we have to see this in order to understand Obadiah. We know the story of how Esau was born first, which in that culture gave him the rights to a number of privileges, not because he was better, but simply because the oldest son usually had to assume the leadership role when the father died and all the responsibility fell on him. And so the older son got a larger portion of the inheritance, the blessing uh, it's often called. And so Esau was born first, but as he was being born, we're told that Jacob was grabbing hold of his heel as if trying to pull him back in and say, no, no, I want to come out first. And their entire lives were characterized by a struggle. We know how Jacob used a moment of tiredness and unclear thinking in Esau's life to con him out of his birthright. I don't have time to get into it, but People always slam Jacob for being the wicked one and doing that. But if you read carefully, a lot of the uh, blame of that incident has to fall on Esau because it says Esau despised his birthright. It's never really seen. The birthright was part of God's blessing to his people. The promise to Abraham passed down through the sons. Esau despised it. In other words, the Bible's telling us he cared nothing for the promises of God. He cared nothing for the godly inheritance and a godly lineage. And so Jacob took his birthright. And that's not all. When their father Isaac was on his deathbed and about to give his blessing to the oldest son, Jacob, in partnership with his mother, conned their father out of the blessing. And Isaac, who was blind at that time, 
accidentally gave the blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau. When Esau found out what Jacob had done, he vowed to kill him. And so Jacob had to run for his life, and he spent years as a fugitive. In fact, Esau spent about, if I've calculated it right, Esau spent about 20 years of his life pursuing his brother Jacob, wanting to kill him. Eventually, we're told later on in Genesis that they did come to a place where they tried to make amends. They tried to make peace, but it's very clear from that point forward in biblical history that Esau's participation in that um, ceasefire, if you will, was an outward show. It was not a true heart transformation, just like we saw in Joel last week. God said, don't, don't show me you're sorrowful by tearing your clothes. Tear your heart. I want you to have a broken heart. And this is a perfect picture of someone who just went through the motions and said, fine, let's do this. I'll forgive you. I'll stop chasing you. But Esau's bitterness ran so deep listen to this, that he passed his grudge down to his children and his children passed it down to their children for hundreds of generations. That grudge became sort of the crest of Esau's family lineage. Esau's children took on the bitterness. Their grandchildren took it on. They passed it down. They eventually became a nation, and the entire nation held this grudge. And that's precisely what Obadiah is having to address generations later. Now, one other quick thing from this Genesis story that is vital to Obadiah. Genesis tells us two key details about these boys that we cannot afford to miss. I put this on a slide just to help cement it in your mind. In Genesis 25, it tells us that Esau was named Edom, E-D-O-M. It means red. And there's a lot of symbolism there. And then later on in Genesis 32, Jacob was renamed Israel. Jacob became the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So keep that in mind now. Esau became Edom. He was named Edom. Jacob was named Israel. That's very, very important as we come to this book. So Jacob's descendants became known as the Israelites. Esau's descendants, we're told, settled and established a land called Edom, the kingdom of Edom, and they became known as the Edomites. And years later, we see this grudge being played out again when Moses was leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and they were making their way to the promised land. They had to pass through Edom to get there without going a long, long way around. And we're told that the Edomites refused to let them through. Why? Because Esau's descendants never forgot what Jacob had done, and they wanted revenge. Okay, 
So all this ties into the book of Obadiah. We're going to see a city mentioned in the book of Obadiah called Petra, P-E-T-R-A. It was the capital of Edom. The city of Petra was chiseled out of solid rock in the side of a huge mountain. Buildings and homes were carved out of that rock as high as 700 feet off the ground. You can still take tours of it today. Some of you have been there. I brought a couple photos just to show you to help, uh, to help you see where we're talking about, where Obadiah is talking about. Put that first photo of Petra up there, and you can see, uh, you see the red glow on the rock. Edom means red. There's a lot that ties in here. Uh, go to the next slide, and you can see another shot of uh, one of the other temples there, carved out of solid rock. This was one of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world, this city. Petra is located in a very remote region of the country that we know as Jordan today. It's down in the uh, lower right corner. What is that? I'm terrible with the southeast, southeast part of Jordan. Uh, it's extremely difficult to get to Petra. It's a long, exhausting journey just to get there. But then when you get there, it's equally as difficult to get into the city. Because the only way into Petra is through uh, a long, winding, mile and a quarter long, narrow tunnel into the canyon. In fact, I brought one photo of that as well. Take a look at uh, this tunnel here. Now there's as you're arriving to Petra, but you have to walk through something like this for over a mile just to get into the city. Petra was a towering, imposing fortress that was impenetrable by enemies. At least that's what they thought. The Edomites would go out and raid unsuspecting cities and towns around them, and then they would race back to their high perch in Petra, and sit there and laugh out loud at the, um, the damage that they had, had caused, the way that they had destroyed other cities, and they come back to Petra, and they saw themselves as untouchable. When Jerusalem fell on several occasions, we're told that Edom thought it was great to see their brothers hurt. They took pleasure in it. We get a glimpse of this in Psalm 137, verse 7. It says, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. They said, tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. And do you hear the anger, the bitterness, the resentment that has built up over the centuries? From an incident, a couple of incidences that happened generations before and this gives you some idea, just a quick idea of the level of hatred the Edomites still had toward their own brother, the Israelites. So as I said, the, the prophecy of Obadiah serves as a warning of the dangers of pride and the destructive consequences of holding grudges. So with that in mind, did I give you enough time to find Obadiah? With that in mind, let's look at Obadiah 1. There's only one chapter. I never know whether to say Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1, or just Obadiah 1, but 
we'll figure it out as we go. Obadiah 1. In verses 1 through 9, God declares judgment on this nation. Let's look at it. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God. Now, this isn't Obadiah speaking. He's making it very clear. This is from God. I'm just the mouthpiece. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Five times in verses 3 and 4, it mentions that they lived in a high, impenetrable fortress. They had put themselves in what they thought was a secure, untouchable position. And this had given them a sense of superiority and pride and confidence. But verse 3 reveals the crack in their armor. Did you catch it? The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's what pride does. It deceives your heart and your mind by giving you a false sense of security. And what's the danger that comes from that? We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. We've all heard this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's one of the dangers of pride. It will make you think that you're standing strong. It will make you think that you're secure. But it's just a mirage. It's just a deception. A person's education or job title or financial status or accomplishments, and the list goes on, can, can give a person a, a sense of security, even smugness. But as I said a moment ago, in the blink of an eye, life can change. And that person can be brought low. And it can happen to any of us. But it's not just their physical surroundings that will fail them. Look at verse 7. In verses 7 through 9, God says that the very people they've trusted in are going to bring them to ruin. Verse 7, all the men allied with you shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a wound or a trap under you. No one is aware of it. What does this mean? Those who eat your bread will lay a trap for you. What a strange thing to say. Watch this. Recent excavations... Uh, in Edom, have unearthed enormous foundries where iron and copper 
were manufactured. Enormous factories. Uh, people have done calculations on the, the estimated production levels of these factories when they were operating, and it rivals Pittsburgh, the steel city. As a matter of fact, uh, Edom has been called the Pittsburgh of Palestine. <laughs> They've also been called uh, the, the, their foundries, their, their iron and copper plants have been called the bread of Edom. Just as you would say, steel is the bread of Pittsburgh. Fishing is the bread of Galveston, and so on. When verse 7 says, those who eat your bread will lay a trap under you, God is saying, all those surrounding nations who bought iron and copper from you all those years at the exorbitant prices that you charged, They've taken all of that, and they're going to make swords and spears and chariots out of it. So the very thing that, that was your bread and butter is going to come back on you as those nations turn and use that very iron to come back and destroy you. Isn't that interesting? All the while, Edom, in their smugness, were making a huge profit on all of this, thinking, boy, look at us go. And they had no idea that a plan was in place. God was saying, these folks are going to take what was your bread and butter, and they're going to turn around and use that very thing to bring destruction upon you. You know, I can't help but make the connection here and just say that America should learn a lesson from this. Our leaders are blind fools if they continue to send billions of dollars of ammunition and planes and tanks and bombs to countries who hate us. And it's just a matter of time before those very things are turned and used against us. My children knew better than that when they were young. And yet our leaders continue, continue to do this. We're fools for this. We're fools. may not happen in our lifetime, but I guarantee you it's just a matter of time. Well, verse 8 in Obadiah says, Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The, the message is clear. God is saying to them, not only have you been relying on your physical location, your high lofty position for security, not only have you been relying on your manufacturing power, which has brought tremendous influence for Edom among the surrounding nations. Political influence, history tells us. But you've also been relying on your wisdom, your wise men, your intelligence, your learning, your skill to carry you through. God says, I'm even going to strike there and show you how weak that is. 
And the message is clear that trusting in your wisdom or your might or your resources or in other people is such a temporary place to put your trust. I've told you before, don't put your trust in me. Love me, yes, great. I love you too, let's do that. But don't put your trust in me. I will let you down at some point. Maybe in a small way, maybe in a big way. I'm just a a man up here, a broken man, trying to proclaim the words of God. That's all I am. Pastors, this is why I refuse these titles, you know, lead pastor, senior pastor. Gives me the creeps, man, when I think about that. They've forgotten what pastor means. Pastor means shepherd. It was a dirty word back then. There was nothing glamorous about being a shepherd. And that's what Jesus said. We are the leaders of the church. We're shepherds. We're down in the mud with the people. I spent hours this week with someone. Hours. Helping. Trying to work through problems. Well, I about went off on another trail, but I'm disciplining myself to stay the course. Putting your trust in other people will prove in time to be a very shaky place to put your trust. Jeremiah explains this better than perhaps anywhere that I know in Scripture. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. You see, there's the problem. When you put your trust in man, your trust isn't in God. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, a salt land which is not inhabited. Okay, so what's the answer, Jeremiah? We'll look at the next two verses, verses 7 and 8. He shows us the opposite. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. Mm. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will it cease from yielding fruit. What a remarkable promise this is. That whatever the storms of life may blow our way, whatever hardships we encounter, whatever setbacks or loss we have to walk through, if we keep our hope and trust in God, he has promised that even during those times of drought and dryness and lack, we will flourish like a tree that is planted by a river. What a beautiful, beautiful promise that is. So in verses 1 to 9 of Obadiah, God is saying how Edom is going to be brought down. Now in verses 10 to 16, God lists the reasons why this is going to happen. I've told you before, God never dishes out random judgment. God put his laws in place. This is why I told you the book of Genesis is so vital to everything else in the Bible because God established his laws there in the book of Genesis. And everything from that point on right up to this very moment are subject to those laws of God. 
They cannot be violated. It's often called the law of the harvest, of sowing and reaping. If we follow God's word and live by his word, the promises of God are sure. If we don't, the judgments of God are inevitable. It's a natural consequence. It's like taking a glass out and dropping it on the driveway. It's going to break. It's not the glass's fault. It's not the driveway's fault. It's just a natural consequence of what you did. There's a law at work there. And so when we see God proclaiming judgment on these people, it's not just some knee-jerk reaction. God has called and called and called and called these people, and they've, they've thumbed their nose at God and said, we don't need you. Take a hike. And God said, man, the clock's ticking. Judgment's about to fall. He says in verse 10, it's for violence against your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates, speaking of Jacob's gates or Israel's gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were one of them. You participated in helping to destroy your brother. Verse 12, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. There's some powerful lessons right there. If you want to study a verse that you can gain a lot from, Obadiah verse 12, is loaded. It's loaded. Talking about our relationship with, with our enemies, with those people who have hurt us or wounded us. Don't stand idly by and watch when they're in trouble, it's saying. Nor should you be glad when trouble comes upon them. And nor should you have spoken about it in the way that you did. God is saying to the descendants of Esau, not only did you inflict violence on your own brothers, you stood idly by while they were attacked by an enemy. And not only that, you went and joined in the attack on your own brothers. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, They actually assisted in the carrying off of their brothers to captivity. Verse 13, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. See, they stood idly by and watched them, and then they went and took advantage of them in the time that they were down. Kicking somebody when they're down is what we would say. Verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. See, one of the sure signs, one of the telltale signs of Resentment and unforgiveness is when a person takes delight 
in the downfall of someone who has hurt them. You think maybe God's trying to teach us something here? Because doesn't this sound exactly like what I was saying a couple weeks ago? And in Jonah, right? We saw this in Jonah. Saw it in Joel. We see it again. It's one of the signs of resentment. It's one of the signs of unforgiveness. When you delight and you clap your hands for joy when the person who has wronged you faces calamity. The descendants of Esau held on to that grudge so tightly against their brother Jacob, and they even assisted in their downfall. And their pride had brought them to this place. Their pride had fooled them into believing that they were secure forever, but God turned the tables and he utterly destroyed them. And their devastation was felt far and wide. Even Jeremiah writes about it. Let me show you these quickly. Jeremiah 49 Verse 13, for I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra. Now, Basra is one of the cities of Edom, very important city. Uh, That Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse. And all her cities shall be perpetual ruins. Now, I'll tell you quickly, Basra, Basra was an important city. It was called the Crossroads of Edom. Um, It was on two trade routes, right at the crossroads. It was a very busy city of commerce. In fact, Isaiah writes about Basra and says that Basra uh, was the producer of dyed fabrics and clothes that got sent out all over the world. So verse 14 of Jeremiah 49, I have heard a message from the Lord and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together. Come against her and rise up to battle, for indeed I will make you small among the nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you. The pride of your heart, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues. In other words, sort of like, or look at that. As uh, Verse 18, as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. And what does the city of Basra look like today? You want to see some photos of it? Take a look at this. That's Basra today. Folks, God's word is absolutely true. This once bustling city that turned their back on God and lived for evil. God said, I will wipe you out. No one will ever live in you again. You're going to be a desolate wasteland. There it is right there. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The final outcome of all those who live with the pride of Edom will not be good, whether it's individuals doing it or nations doing it. Let's look quickly at verses 15 and 16 of Obadiah. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Does that remind you of uh, Matthew 7, I believe it is, where Jesus says, 
Do not judge or you will be judged. It says, for the measure you use will be measured back to you. And by the way, that works for both good and bad. When we dish out harm, judgment, gossip, evil against other people, God says, okay, you used a truckload of harm against this person. I'm going to dish back a truckload of harm upon you. When we give to the Lord and we do uh, acts of love and kindness, if we use a teaspoon to do that, God says, great, that's fine. So I'm going to bless you a teaspoonful. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. And this, you know, this is a very dark thing to read. It's, it's not a wonderful Sunday morning, cheery, bright birds chirping kind of stuff. But this is what must happen when people turn their back on God and refuse his grace again and again and again. But thankfully, Obadiah ends on a beautiful note with a wonderful promise. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, there it is again. We saw this last week in Joel. It's talking about Jerusalem, but on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. That doesn't mean much to you and me, but boy, that meant the world to them. God's saying, I know that you've been taken advantage of. I know that people have stolen your land. I know all this has gone on, but trust me, my people, trust me. The promise I made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, trust me, when I said I would give you the land forever, I'm going to do it. It's just going to take some time. He goes on in the next few verses to describe how the land will be distributed uh, rightly among the people. And then he concludes with this beautiful promise in verse 21. The saviors or deliverers shall come up to Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Wow, what a great last statement that is. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. And just as we saw in Joel, God has the final say. Man can ascend on high. He can can elevate himself. In fact, the word here at the beginning of Obadiah, I didn't have time to get into it, is uh, exalt. When it says they uh, built up high, it's talking about pride. It's talking about exalting yourself above others. Isn't it interesting? How man always has this desire to elevate himself. Started at the Tower of Babel. Let's build this tower so we can reach the heavens. God says, no, 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 that's, that's high enough. You're not coming any higher. And God has to knock us down. He has to keep us humble because we're so proud. It's in all of us because of sin. Folks, we can rest assured, whatever is going on today, and I realize that this doesn't fix any problems today. I realize this may not even make you feel any better today. But sometimes just having the foundation of certainty of God's promises in the time of struggle is enough 
to keep your feet from slipping. You can be assured of this. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever is going on in the world around us that is dark and difficult and dreary, be assured that God will have the final say. His kingdom will be established and he will fulfill his promises to his people. And that's not the kind of hope that we say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. The Bible's hope is a certainty. It is a guarantee. And we hope in that. I say in closing, the principles of God applied to Edom still apply today because they are eternal principles. And what is that? Boiled down, it's this. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I bet every one of us in here today could say, well, I, could, I could use a little more grace. You know how to get it? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, the Bible gives us the option. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We, we miss the first two words. Humble yourselves. John said it in John uh, 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. Every day when we wake up, we can start on the right foot by saying, Oh God, I'm such a proud person. I want so much to elevate myself above other people. I want my needs to be met today. I want others to bend to my will God, put that man to death today. Keep me humble today. Keep me humble before you. Keep me humble before others. I can't read Obadiah without thinking of this one beautiful verse, and I close with this. Micah 6.8. Do you want to know how to live your life so you never become like Edom? Listen to this. Here it is, wrapped up in one verse. He has shown you, O man. In other words, you already know this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's how we're to live, folks. Right there. Holding on to grudges. Elevating ourselves in pride is a sure way to destruction. God, help us all every day of our lives for the rest of our life. God, help us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Father, once again, uh, the power and the truth of your word is inescapable. We know it says that it cuts right to the very heart of us and exposes um, the real us on the inside. And Lord, we see that and we see the ugliness of what sin has done to us. But I know everybody in this place this morning who knows you longs to live a life that will glorify you. 
We're all in this struggle together, all of us. And so I pray, Father, that you would do what we cannot do. I pray that you would fill us with a love of justice and mercy and cause us, Lord, to walk humbly before you. That's a dangerous prayer. I understand that. I know that it may take some rough things for us to truly be humble before you. But God, do what you need to do because this is our desire. We long to be people who love your justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly before our God. Lord, if there are issues in our life today that the Holy Spirit has brought to our attention, things that we need to settle with others and take care of so that we are not continuing to head down the path of Edom, I pray, Lord, you would give us the strength to take steps to deal with that. And Lord, move in our lives in this respect, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.